I acknowledge that the land I work, live, and play on is the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Welcome to Van X Van, episode 59. Uh, I'm Doug Vandalay, and I'm joined today by award-winning journalist and podcast producer, Polly Leisure. Is it Leisure? Leisure. Yeah, it's Leisure. Yeah. Oh, cool. Mm. I was like, is it Leger or Leisure? And it was option three. Yeah. 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 yeah I get a lot of uh, loggers as well. Logger, really? Mm. I even um, went on YouTube and said how to pronounce surname. It was like weirdly anglicized. I think it's just one of those things. Are you French Canadian? Yes, we were. Right. Yeah, yeah. that cool. split off, and here we are today. <laughs> you work with uh, Sided Media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what shows are you working on currently? So um, they have a couple shows that they do, and I've got my little fingers on a couple of them. Uh, we have a show called Sighted. That's with a C, like citations. Um, and, uh, the folks over at CMP have been doing that show for like eight years and, um, we're coming out with a new season, um, in April. So that one's more about like the kind of power behind ideas and expertise and kind of bridging these different worlds of like, how did these policies really get in place? And it's more narrative, but it's also a little bit more academic. And then uh, I sometimes help out on the show Crackdown, which is uh, fantastic. It's hosted by Garth Mullins, and it's essentially about the drug war, mostly here in the downtown east side in Vancouver. But um, it is told by people who use drugs, drug user activists, and uh, people in the community and from the community. And then we also have some um, private, um, like, podcasts that we do for businesses so those ones are more in-house but uh it's another kind of side hustle side it has going just internal to those businesses uh not necessarily internal but um we haven't actually signed a full contract so i don't know if i can talk about it all right yeah. well uh, we can we can just leave that on the table what uh was your involvement in crackdown um so i did episode eight which is called the cost of cereal about um a safe injection space called sister space uh which is for femmes uh and non-binary folks which is just it's essentially they found that women were avoiding certain safe injection sites whether that was like the back room at vandu which is a um a group of drug user activists and they have a, a, a space where you can do drugs and someone has Narcan and someone's always kind of on duty or more structured medicalized spaces like Insight. And um, what they were finding was that women just weren't going for a whole variety of reasons. But part of it was you are a lot more vulnerable when you're nodding off and not you know, that idea of safety or just wanting to be in a space where you didn't have kind of like the male gaze on you was uh, was a big one. So they opened up uh, a couple of years ago and uh, it's been really, really successful. They have, not only have they never had any overdose fatalities, which is true of like all safe injection spaces and harm reduction spaces, but they have under a hundred actual overdoses. So women are taking their time, they're testing their drugs, 
Um, they can go a little bit more slowly. And because it's serving a smaller population, they don't have the same time pressures as the other sites do, which is basically come in, you've got like 15 minutes to get well, do your fix, um, and then you're on your way. But because Sister Space serves a smaller population of people, um, you can stay all day if you need to. Yeah. Is there any kind of government intervention in that sort of thing? Like, do they, do you need a license to be able to do that? Uh, well, this gets funding through ATIRA, which yeah. gets funding from the province and the city. So it's like Vancouver Coastal Health and ultimately the, the Ministry of Health, which might be now under mental health and addictions. Sometimes I'm not sure off the top of my head what kind of Venn diagram that is between the two. But th- it's they're, like it's officially sanctioned. Yeah. Well, the reason I ask is um, I'm just thinking about some businesses just even bars and restaurants where you go into the bathroom and you see the uh naloxone yeah naloxone the the narcan kits is that what they are yeah yeah and what i find interesting about that is that any place i've been that has one of those in the bathroom usually feels like a safe place the bathrooms are usually less uh sketchy to use a a bad term but then the anti-social places like a Safeway bathroom with a blue light on it are always the worst ones. Yeah. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and um, I wonder if businesses can get in trouble for saying, you know, this is a safe place. Uh, no. So, like, there's good Samaritan laws. So it's that's like to say, like, um, if you have, like, a warrant out and you're around somebody who's overdosing and you call 911 and police arrive at the scene, by law they are supposed to just treat the person who is overdosing and you are, you know, they're not going to charge you for um, calling for help. But then what ends up happening is like, if you are someone with a a record or you might be, have some drugs on you, like police, we still hear stories from people saying, yeah, no, I still got busted. But the idea of these good Samaritan laws are that you will not get in trouble for calling somebody for calling for help for somebody who's overdosing, even if you're doing drugs yourself or maybe you share your drugs with them because we're trying to save people's lives. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot of marginalized communities do not have good relationships with the police for very good reasons. So that's like one more reason why you might not call for official help. So the uh, like Narcan kits, you can get those for free. You can get training. So like I'm certified. I did training workshop down um i think with the portland hotel society maybe it's been a couple of years i can't even remember where i did it so if you carry an arcan around or if you hang one up in the bathroom of your business you're not saying hey come here and do drugs what you're saying is we'll look after if you, you if you're in trouble and there's somebody here who will look after you so i think uh there's nothing on the books that will punish folks for doing that the biggest thing, in, in, and like even now, like there's been so many like quote unquote unauthorized overdose prevention sites that have sprung up because people are dying in huge numbers. And like, you know, the, they've quote unquote like leveled off, but you're still looking at, you know, thousands of people dying in total and like over a thousand people dying every year in Vancouver. So I think kind of the understanding is that they're not going to prosecute or or hassle people for saying we have something that could save your life. 
That was a roundabout answer. I don't know if I officially no, that, answered that, it. That was but, good. I just yeah. uh, I just wanted you to keep talking. I was just <laughs> learning. I should listen to that episode. Crackdown in general is really <laughs> what a plug. It's well, I mean uh, I, yeah. I often think like, am I in a stable enough mood right now to listen to this show? Um, because it's fantastic, but you know it's it's obviously a heavy hitter of a subject. Mm-hmm. But one thing I really like about it is that. You do still find, like, there's still jokes in there because yeah. this is just, like, people still have joy in their lives, right? So um, that has been a conversation that I've heard the the main producers of the show have just being like, is this episode, where are the jokes, you know? Oh, so every episode has a, a, a mandate for entertainment as well as <laughs> education? I, would, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> uh, we get our, our marching orders from the editorial board, right. which is... Um, primarily made up of drug user activists and um, our science advisor, Ryan McNeil, who uh, was at the BC Center for Substance Use. So is that uh, is it two seasons out or one season out currently? One season out. We just came out with our 10th episode. Oh, nice. On November 27th. I don't know when this will air, but it was yesterday. Yeah, so uh, that'll be out. That'll be out. It yeah. was, uh, um, I, I gave myself a... We talked about this. Uh, we were on that panel together. Mm-hmm. That I took a break to give myself a buffer for this. I'm I'm right back to uh oh, no! to one week ahead again. Yeah, it I happens mean, so quickly. So I, quickly. I don't know where it went. I thought I thought I was on top of it, yeah. but I looked today like oh how many do I do I have uh, in between this one I'm recording tonight and next week and it's zero. This is coming out on Wednesday. Whew. Yeah. And I should just mention, like, with Crackdown, I um, produced there's, one There's obviously a lot more production goes into a show like that than yeah, this. Yeah, like, it's, like, narrative and documentary. And uh, by and large, I am kind of like a what do you guys need extra hands with? So I do a lot of fact-checking and kind of more of the uh, document sourcing. Um, but Sam Fenn and Alex Kim and Lisa Hale and Garth Mullins, like, they're the ones who are actually out in the field doing that crafting, doing that mixing, writing those scripts. So... Yeah, I mean, the thing about CMP is that we all kind of help out with each other's stuff. That's sided you know? media. That's sided media, yeah, productions. Okay. Tell us about 2050 Degrees of Change. Ooh, y'all want to talk about climate change? Uh, this was a podcast that came out in 2017, I think. You're looking at me like I a... know, I'm looking at you being like, do you have my notes? Um, so it was a uh, six-part podcast that I did with CBC Vancouver. It was hosted by Johanna Wegstaff, who is a, in addition to a million other things, also a meteorologist and a science uh, correspondent for CBC. And um, this was a way to try to talk about climate change beyond, like, it's very hard to imagine what our world is going to look like in a certain number of years. So it's, the podcast is set in the year 2050 trying to imagine what life is going to be like in the lower mainland and in BC with um, the climate projections that we're seeing. So the whole kind of scientific basis of it was we didn't want it to be at the end of the century because that seems so far away that it's intangible. Yeah. And we also didn't want to use like the best case warming scenario where we like meet uh, the Paris Accord agreements and like, avert the you know rising above a you know at least one degree of of global warming um because that does not seem likely we also didn't want to go with the worst case scenario which is where 
in the next 30 years, we do nothing. It's business as usual. And we just see an exponential rise in our carbon output. I can see your face. Like your face yeah. is just like, oh, no. It's, it's funny you use the term business as usual because that's <laughs> generally the main, the main problem. Yeah, exactly. So we instead decide to look at this kind of it's it essentially manages to, to the the kind of middle ground means doing a ton of work changing a lot of systems and like rethinking the way we use any kind of fossil fuel whether it's in manufacturing or otherwise uh, and and manage to kind of stay relatively steady with probably about two degrees of warming yeah and so we decided to look at that speaking with leading researchers in their fields about okay these are what the projections are calling for we're working off of the same uh, model so what does that look like for glaciers what does that look like in forests what does that look like for fire or for urban planning or for all these different big picture questions like how will it look how it will feel how do we make it tangible and that was the idea of 2050 degrees of change find tell scientific stories by essentially creating a world that was fully based in these scientific so thoughts sort of like a spe- speculative fiction yeah i guess so yeah that like a heavily researched speculative fiction that's also a work of science journalism i haven't actually listened to that one but um what is the format of it is, is it a uh, a drama or more like a news so, interview um, it was a little bit more of a news interview but we did have this framing device of a little girl named Ariadne speaking to her AI every morning who would wake her up and just kind of tell her the news and kind of set things up. So whether that was this time of year, here's the temperature, here's the weather, which would be based on the projections we're seeing for that time of year. But also things like, you know, there's like an automated streetcar coming to pick you up or you know, what's on the grocery list. I think we have a, a mention about how many species have gone extinct that day. So framing that as as bringing you into the future and then building out that world with um, interviews in the present. Is there any optimism present? The, hmm, I mean, yes and no. I think if we find ways to adapt, then... Like, this is the biggest thing. is like, you have to adapt. Yeah. There's no other option. And the thing I found really interesting about this one was that I was doing all the pre-interviews and researching, and I was talking to all these scientists and analysts, and and they were all so much more pessimistic to me on the phone than they were as soon as we, like, we got there and turned on the microphones. And I think that's just a way to keep us from, like, putting our heads in the sand and being like, there's nothing we can do. And... I don't know. The thing about 2050 is like my, some people find it super depressing and some people were like, oh, okay, it's actually helping me try to like understand what this is going to look like here, uh, like in an environment that I know here conceptualize. In, in here BC. in BC, here in Vancouver, he, along, like along the seawall or up on Grouse Mountain, like to place it rather than to say, okay. So the seawall's still around? You're going to have to listen and Yeah, see. no, I'm going to. I'm really curious. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is going to, like, we talked to city planners who are already planning ahead to mid-century, because if you're talking about big infrastructure projects, like, 30 years is nothing. Yeah. And they're looking at building berms and 
uh, strengthening dikes and like up at Jericho Beach, how do you protect all the water, uh, all the sand from being eroded by more uh, stronger storms and like bigger uh, storm surges? And they're like, okay, we're going to have to build out some, what is the word for this? I When I say seawall, I don't mean the one that we walk on. I mean the one, like a, a sea break, Like an actual almost, Like wall. an actual wall. Or... Like, the, like the dikes in the Netherlands. A little bit, yeah. Like they're... Uh, that one at the mouth of the Thames. Yeah. That I forget the name of. Exactly. They're like looking elsewhere to be like, okay, how do we mitigate horrible flooding here? Um, Where is the high water mark in this uh, speculative fiction? Like somewhere around Squamish? Oh, jeez. I don't remember that off the top of my head, but if you go underneath the Canby Street Bridge, yeah, um, there are high, there's like uh, three shades of blue that go up, and the city actually did those as a way to say, like, these are the markers for projected climate, like, sea level rise. And I think that theirs are till the end of the century, um, but you can see kind of like best case, worst case. Are you a new DM? Are you an experienced DM? Doesn't matter. Listen to DMs of Vancouver for great DMing advice. I'll have to go you check know? that out. I didn't know about that. Yeah. Is it's... that the same bridge that got the chandelier? No, that's underneath Grandville. <laughs> what yeah. do you think about that on a different tack? Uh, I honestly saw one still photograph on Twitter, and that was it. So. I, I think we probably saw the same the same one. Yeah. I was like, all right. I Honestly, I love public spaces. Underneath bridges? I guess yeah. it's a public art thing, and it's not like that uh, under-the-bridge restaurant in Toronto. Yeah. No, that's garbage. Yeah. Garbage. I think that got kind of heckled out of existence. Yeah, because they're just like, oh, sorry. No poors allowed. Anyway, uh, <laughs> you can... <laughs> I think you can make uh, spaces that are usually underused and like flooded and covered in bird shit really great. Sorry, can I swear? I just yeah, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, I think you can make them really wonderful public spaces. And if you're not doing that by like putting in homeless like spikes to keep people without homes from sleeping somewhere or like giving them weird pods for rich people to eat their food in, I don't know. That was. I can't stand the antisocial architecture. Yeah. I, so I I uh, actually studied as an architect, and one of my friends did his master's thesis on antisocial architecture. Mm-hmm. And so, because I was talking to him a lot, and now I just notice it everywhere. Like we're outside a uh, a brewery um, in Railtown, which is more or less the downtown east side, um, just a block away. It's the uh, it's the rich tech part, and people going on about this cool sculpture outside of it and it's just it's like there's, there's just nowhere to lie down there now as a result it's just a bunch of different differently heighted bits of wood and it does look kind of cool but right you but can't it's... even walk on it yeah yeah it's uh there's definitely a reason for it yeah is it art or is it a way to like keep people who you don't want near your store away from your store yeah so something uh, hopefully a little bit less doom and gloom. Um, I read on your PodFest bio that as a journalist, you covered Vancouver's queer history. Yeah. yeah. So it was actually one of the last things I did for CBC Vancouver before I left was this Pride season. It's been 50 years since decriminalization of homosexuality in Canada. Well, certain kinds of homosexuality. And that's only like they took the sodomy laws off the books. But obviously... It's still been 50 years of, like, a lot of 
uh, push for, for actual civil rights and equal rights. And I was just fascinated by thinking like, I'm so new to Vancouver, but Vancouver has had like a, a very real history of uh, queer activism. So um, I did like a little story for every day was a new decade. So we started in the 70s because it was decriminalized in 69. Um, and then up until the teens, I guess we're in the teens now. Yeah. Well, we won't have to uh, worry about that for much longer. <laughs> so um, I spoke with this really wonderful na- man, Don. Don Ham. So um, Don is in his 70s now, and he was a really uh, early member of GATE, which was the Gay Alliance Towards Equality. And he was just like this just civil rights force to be reckoned with and his whole house is like a museum to Vancouver's queer history and he was also um, a childcare advocate and was really uh, like a big supporter of unions and he is just this super interesting lovely human who after I interviewed him just kept sending me poems and pictures from back in the day and Gate was actually involved in um, this case that made it to the Supreme Court of Canada, where they had uh, like a like a newspaper, and they tried to advertise it in the Vancouver Sun, um, and the Vancouver Sun was like, "Absolutely not! We are not printing that." So they sued. What, um, what year was this? Seventy three, I think it started. It um, it took like almost nine years for it to go through so yeah the 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 paper was called gay tide and um it yeah they ended up protesting the sun and it was really kind of incredible like it was the they actually ended up um losing but it it brought it to like a national spotlight of saying like yeah okay like why can't you like why is my why is your freedom of speech being uh shut down because you're gay right um yeah, it's freedom of speech but only for a select for only group for of a, people. a select group of people so um yeah don was really like an early pioneer here in 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 vancouver and he was just like such a super lovely beautiful human and in his whole apartment he's like you know he still had old protest signs like f- that he had framed and like put up and flyers for like early um kind of like before pride was official sort of thing yeah and that was really just to be like okay like what was it like to be out in the 70s you know and what were the fights that you were fighting in the 70s and then when we looked at the 80s we talked about um the cherry grove aids memorial which is one of the first aids memorials in north america um it was put up in 1984 and it's actually if you're going down to stanley park and there's um there's like a marina it's not the 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 rowing club, but it's like where boats that take out tourists are. Yep. There's this little park you can walk through that beside Georgia Street, and there are four cherry trees planted there that were planted for early victims of HIV/AIDS. And it was anonymous. You know, pe- people didn't want their full names attached to it. There were no markers. It was kind of like if you knew somebody, if you, if you were in the know, you could go there and see these beautiful cherry trees. Um, and it wasn't until I think 2014 that a, a, 
a marker was put up of like this was you know it was the first AIDS memorial in in uh, BC and and poss- quite possibly um, in North America. I've never heard of a guerrilla memorial before, but that's really cool. Yeah, apparently they did have some city sanction, um, but it is you know you think about yeah 84. it prevents it from being vandalized. Yeah, destroyed exactly and. Also, just like in 1984, like there's still so much stigma. There is so little help. There's like, yeah, like people were still fighting for recognition in the 90s, and that's 10 years before. So to have this kind of beautiful bloom go up, I think was is is still really beautiful. We talked about the Gay Games in the 1990s, which was uh, the first time. So the Gay Games are basically like a huge, big queer Olympics, and they're still happening um, in Vancouver. No, they, they happen all over the world. So they started off, they did two years in San Francisco. And they were like, maybe we should have it in Vancouver. So they brought to Vancouver and like 7,000 people showed up. They had to like billet people at people's homes. They had all kinds of different sports, not just like the the kind of like usual suspects. They had um, like lawn bowling and cricket and... Um, hey, those are both Olympic sports. Re- well, they is have lawn been. bowling an Olympic story? Yeah, lawn, bo- lawn bowling is an Olympic not sport. Not cricket, croquet. Croquet? Croquet. All right. Do not think that lawn games are an Olympic sport. I've watched I've watched lawn bowls in the Olympics. Uh, right. So when I was 15, I was part of my uh, bowling club's team nice. in my hometown. It's like lawn bowls is the curling of Australia. So I get that. It's like all the, uh, the legions. Um, that's just where all the old cultures hang out and drink cheap beer. Is lawn bowling different than bocce ball? Yes. Lawn bowling is the one where it's a larger ball, ball and there's a bias in one side, so it curls. Ah. And then bocce is, there's no bias. The ball just goes straight. Learn something new every day. Yeah. Hmm. Well, sorry to uh, co-opt your uh, message there. Well, that's okay. What I'm saying <laughs> is, um, it, it was actually really great for that one. I got to go to the um, City of Vancouver archives and there's like full books. And if you actually go to the Museum of Vancouver, you can like see some of the memorabilia from it. And yeah, it's kind of, I I think really uh, wonderful to see. Like Pride now is huge and it's very corporate and you can argue that that's a positive thing or you can argue that it's a, you know, uh, a crushing thing. But one thing that really kind of warmed the, the cockles of my own, like icy queer heart was seeing these like just huge acts of queer joy at a time when it was so much harder to, to be out and to not be harassed and, and all of these things. So to, uh, see that happen was pretty great i actually spoke with betty baxter this is going to be like a million years long uh but betty baxter was um she was an olympian in like the early 70s she was uh, on team canada vo- uh, volleyball and then she was a coach and she was outed in the press and they fired her from being a coach so she was just like okay i've spent literally my whole life like working on this sport to yeah. s- to be fired unceremoniously and she ended up going to the gay games in San Francisco just to like see someone compete. And then she's like, oh, this is, this is great. I want to like help make this happen in Vancouver. And she's also just like a very cool together person who shared a lot of time with me, which is very nice of her. That's yeah. nice that you got to speak to these, 
these people? How did you uh, find them in the first place? Um, so I think what I originally did is the, uh, there is like a, an archive of LGBTQ Vancouver at the city archives. And it was originally someone's personal collection and he donated it, um, a couple years ago, Vancouver was, uh, they called it the year of the queer. That can't be right. But I don't know. It kind of works. Kind of works, right? Yeah. Um, but they, he he donated his personal collection to the city, and now it's like properly housed in a in a city archive. And I found his email because uh, I was working for CBC, and he had been somebody who had been interviewed several times, and said, "Listen, like I'm really interested in doing this. Is there anyone I should talk to, or things that you can think about?" And um, from his list, to kind of like did some hop skipping and jumping. And found other folks. Uh, so some of it was literally contacts he put me in with. Some of it was digging around on Twitter, going through the archives and be like, oh, I'd love to speak to this person. And we ended the pan- uh, the, the week with a panel of um, uh, young non-binary folks um, talking about like being out and queer in Vancouver now. And that one for me was just like we talk a lot about how we have equality, but like if you're trans or, or, or non-binary or uh, even just getting people to respect your pronouns is a huge uphill battle. So um, yeah, I wanted to hear what folks had to say. So that was the last one was more of a panel round table conversation than um, the other ones were kind of like seven minute vignettes sort of thing. Where, where can you find this now? Uh, that's a good question. I think so. CBC uh, was really wonderful in that they also sent reporters with us to do big online pieces. So uh, this year, um, CBC Vancouver does, I think the series is called Pride and Prejudice. And you can actually, so if you Google like CBC Pride, everything is kind of linked like they're all nested. So like, for example, I pulled up the story about Don Han and it's called Before Pride in Vancouver, there was GATE. And I don't know it's if... It's a pretty great acronym. It's a very good acronym. Is Pride an acronym? I don't think so. It's just a uh, feeling. Just a feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So an I don't intention. know if you can hear all of the uh, radio segments because typically when you embed radio in online articles, no one listens to it. But you can find... Uh, some of them online great yeah cbc i would say cbc pride 2019 google and they're all kind of nested and linked back to each other maybe we can put a link down below i'll look yeah i'll I'll send some links to them great yeah uh so speaking of radio on that uh same bio that you uh submitted for Vancouver Podfest. It says you you helped a radio listener get a raccoon out of their attic. <laughs> this is the single best uh, part of public service journalism I think I've ever done. Um, so I worked for CBC for uh, eight years, and part of that I was working out of Halifax for like a a, a region wide call in show. So all of New Brunswick, all of PEI, and all of Nova Scotia, called Maritime Noon time to talk it's kind of like bc almanac but it was a lot more it was extremely folksy let's put it that way and one of our extremely popular guests was a uh, wildlife biologist and this and my job i was basically Roz from fraser so i like answered the phones and was like what do you want to say and like yeah figured out the order made sure no one was going to be horrible racist um and um i put this man through 
and he was talking about raccoons in his attic and and bob bancroft our wildlife biologist kind of talked about it for a little bit and then uh we had to go to the next caller and so the next day i get a call on my work phone which was the publicly listed number for the show and this guy calls and i recognize his voice he's like do you remember me i'm the guy with the raccoons i'm like yeah yeah, yeah. sorry did, did bob not answer your question he's like no i want him to get rid of them and he's like well he can't get rid of them like but come he, around to my house come around to my house and get rid of them and i was just like uh oh we, we can't do that but like what's the problem and he's you can tell by his voice that he is older he sounded quite elderly to tell the truth and he was just like, I don't know what to do. Like, what am I supposed to do? I was like, okay, well, where do you live? And he's like, okay, I live in like this county in southern uh, Nova Scotia. So I was like, okay, do you have a pencil? I'm going to like look up animal control for you and like take you through this step by step. So he like, goes off and like gets a pencil. And as soon as he puts the phone down, his wife picks up the phone. And she's just like, I told him not to feed them. There's so many of them. <laughs> he's he <was> feeding just- <laughs> them? And now they won't let go. And I'm just imagining like this tiny, tiny woman who talks with her hands. I have no idea if that's true, but my perfect for, for the listener, you're for the listener talking with your hands exactly. right now. Exactly. So. She's she's just like yelling on our about how she told him he was like trouble. An Estelle Costanza. Absolutely. These were imagine the Costanzas with a raccoon problem. <laughs> uh, and then he like came back and picked up. And I do, I feel like they were on different phone lines because he picked it up and she immediately like put hers down. It was uh, yeah. So I I helped a, an elderly gentleman uh, through every process of getting animal control to his house to take care of some problem raccoons. And the the raccoons are out of the house. Well, he never called me back, so fingers yeah. crossed. All right. Well, I'm glad we could uh, end on a bit of a palate cleanser. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's just like death, doom, raccoons. <laughs> death, doom, and raccoons. The Polly Legere story. <laughs> Legere? Legere? Legere. Cool. Yeah. Okay. We've uh, we've topped and tailed it with that. Perfect. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show tonight. Thank you for having me. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Um, well, Crackdown Podcast just released its 10th episode at the end of November. You should give a listen to that. It's very exciting. And uh, keep an eye out for the new season of Cited in spring of 2021. Thanks for listening to Van X Van. You can find me on Twitter at Doug Vandelay and the show at Van X Vancast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Podchaser or iTunes. It's the best way for us to grow at no cost to you. We're also on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cavegoblins. I'm Doug Vandelay. See you next time. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.